Uh, good morning. Nice to see you on this Christmas Eve morning. Well, we're so glad you could be here this morning to celebrate the Christmas event with us. Let's pray as we begin together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this special day when we can remember together what you have done in sending your son Jesus to come and live among us. Lord, as we look at this story again, may you make it fresh and new in our hearts, and may you use it, Lord, to draw us closer to you. Open our hearts now by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. How are you doing this Christmas season? If you're like me, it's a strange mixture. I love so many aspects of Christmas. I love the songs that we've been singing and the glory of God coming to earth to be a man, to walk amongst us. I love the excitement of the presents, the kids' faces, how excited they are, and all the joy and the fun and the thrill of it. I love all that. But on the contrast, on the other hand, I strongly dislike all the pressure, (laughs) the stress, the planning and the organization and the busyness, the commercialism, the traffic by the mall. (laughs) All of that I strongly dislike. Christmas for me is a time of different extremes. But you know, the original Christmas nearly 2,000 years ago was a time of real extremes as well. There was the glory. The angels came and announced... A wonderful event had happened. Christ, the Messiah, had been born that day. But if we look closely at the Christmas story, there was also the other extreme. The danger, the pain, the struggle, the darkness of the event itself. Consider with me for a moment. Of all the people that have ever been born in the entire universe, ever, the only one that ever got to choose when and where and to whom he would be born was Jesus. The only one in all of history. And yet, how did he choose to be born? Well, that's what we want to explore today. If you had your choice on when and where and to whom to be born, what would you choose? Would you choose, well, probably sometime in modern times, I would guess, Wouldn't you want to have a hospital and doctors and all the things that are necessary to keep someone alive if if it's needed? And probably you would choose, like I would probably, at least a middle-class family, if not a wealthy family, to make sure I could enjoy all that this life, this world has to offer. I would probably choose a very stable country, a secure environment, a secure family to be born into, to make sure that I would have a long and happy and secure life. Well, that's probably what I would choose, and I would guess most of us would choose to be born in that kind of environment. But Jesus didn't choose that. Far from it. This morning I want to look at the old familiar Christmas story, but I want to look at it hopefully in a new light. I want to explore not just the glory of the fact that God became man. But I want us to look at how 
he chose to be born, how he chose to come. And then think together about why he would choose that and see what we learn about God from how he chose to be born. Chose to be born. I want to look in Luke chapter 2, the old familiar story. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Luke chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the first seven verses. And notice this is the Christmas story as written by Dr. Luke, Luke the physician. And because he's a doctor, that makes me pay very close attention to the details of a birth. He obviously had been in on many births, he'd been involved, and therefore he knew what it meant. And so, though he doesn't give us a lot of details, the details he does give us, I think, are very, very significant and teach us a lot about how Jesus chose to come. So let's look first at the first four verses. I'll read those to you of Luke chapter 2. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Let's look at where he chose to be born. The creator of the universe. Where did he choose to be born? Well, it says it was in Judea. This was a tiny backwater country, a little protectorate of the Roman Empire, way off at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. Tiny little place, insignificant country that had been torn for centuries and centuries by oppression and warfare. You see, that whole area of Israel in the time Jesus was born and all the centuries leading up to it was basically a highway for the major powers. Egypt in the south and Babylon and Assyria in the north would come through there, devastate the land, and then go fight their big battles against their major enemies and go back and forth and back and forth. Over and over again, this country was devastated. And at this time, when Jesus chose to be born, it was under the control of the Roman Empire, a time of real insecurity. I was speaking to my youngest son, my my five-year-old, and we were looking at the globe, and he said, Dad, I know where we live. And he turned it, and he said, right there. And he pointed to North America and got the general area of Idaho and near where we are. And then he said, Dad, where did Jesus live? So I turned the globe and I said, well, let me show you. It's right, well, it's, it's that little, you, you see that tiny little dot right there? Tiny, insignificant country that he could barely even see on the globe was where God chose to be born. It was a country under Roman oppression, basically a police state. When you think about Bosnia, Haiti, Somalia today, That's a good indication of what it was like in Judea of that time. If you know your church history, only 70 years after this event of Jesus' birth, the Jews finally said, forget it. They rebelled, and the Romans crushed the entire nation, destroyed it. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground, the temple destroyed. Everything was destroyed. That's the kind of country, situation, that Jesus chose to be born in. Interesting, isn't it? 
And then it says, he chose to be born in the city of Bethlehem, which was a small shepherding town, about five miles from the big city of Jerusalem. Now consider, in the Old Testament, the prophecy about Jesus being born, the Messiah being born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, says that, O Bethlehem, you small, insignificant city, too small to even be considered a clan or a tribe, from you the Messiah will come. Insignificant town. It was basically that little town, wherever you grew up, whatever town you were in. I grew up in a small town in Oregon, but there was an even smaller town, a little ways out of town, that was kind of the place that we made jokes about. Well, that's what Bethlehem was like. It basically provided the sheep for the temple in Jerusalem, and then some stonework, and and that was about it. That was where Jesus chose to be born. And when you go go to Bethlehem, I had the opportunity to go about a year and a half ago. You see this small, insignificant town, even today, down on this hill, and right above it, is a massive mountain called Herodium. And this, on, on top of this hill, was in Jesus' day a huge palace, beautiful, with hot water baths and mosaics and lovely palatial statues all around that King Herod had put up, looking down on the little town of Bethlehem where the creator of the universe chose to be born in humble circumstances. Interesting that God would choose to be born there. And then notice to whom he chose to be born. Let me read verse 4 again and then verse 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. The normal age of engagement in those days was about 14 to 15 years old for a woman, 16 to 17 for a man. And so Jesus chose to be born to two teenagers to give his protection over to them. And we find out later that they were living in poverty. They didn't have what most people had of their day. They didn't even have enough when they brought Jesus to be circumcised eight days after he was born. They didn't have enough to to buy uh, uh, the lamb that most people had. All they had, all they could afford was two turtle doves, which shows that they lived in poverty. And yet that's the family that Jesus chose to be born to. They were from an insignificant little town way up in Galilee. Now, Galilee was the place that it, the people in the south, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, said, nobody's from Galilee. They're a bunch of half-breeds. We don't like them. And even the people in Galilee said, from Nazareth? Remember what Nathaniel said when he was told that the Messiah had come from Nazareth? That that's where he grew up? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a nothing town. And yet that's where Jesus' parents came from and where Jesus chose to grow up. And notice how it ends here in verse 5. Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Engaged, pregnant, but not married. Do you realize the social stigma, the social rejection that Mary experienced while she was in Nazareth? 
as she began to grow? You see, in our day and age, there isn't a lot of stigma connected with getting pregnant out of wedlock. There is some, still. But in a tight Jewish community, tremendous stigma. Philip Yancey writes this. Nine months of awkward explanations, the lingering scent of scandal. It seems that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance, as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. I am impressed that when the Son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, harsh rules. Small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. And yet that's how Jesus chose to be born, to a parent who was stigmatized because of the virgin birth, who was rejected in her hometown, in her society. And scholars tell us that Mary did not have to go to Bethlehem to register. That's the consensus among most scholars. That only the men had to go register in this census. So I ask, why? Why did Mary go with him? Now, she was near birth, and maybe he wanted to be with her. And, of course, they probably understood the prophecy of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. But I also wonder if part of it wasn't that Joseph wanted to rescue Mary from the gossiping tongues of Nazareth, the derision that he must, she must have experienced during those nine months of having an illegitimate child in her womb. And then notice, verses 6 and 7, the circumstances under which Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the Creator, chose to be born. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You see, the conception was supernatural by the Holy Spirit, but the birth was not supernatural. Luke very simply says, the days were completed, it was time, she went into labor, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, I'm sure the women here who have had firstborn sons would by and large agree that that tends to be your most difficult labor and birth. It's a very painful time. I imagine she went through a long labor like most women do. And you have to remember that she had just traveled 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census, which took at least three days, maybe more, of traveling being nine months pregnant. We don't know if she walked or if she rode a donkey, but I can't imagine a donkey being very comfortable either when you're nine months pregnant. Can you? (laughs) And she traveled, probably, she and Joseph, down along the Jordan River, and then the last 15 miles of their journey was a climb of nearly 4,000 feet through steep canyons and rocky terrain. A little bit like walking from here up to Bogus Basin over the rough country, walking it. Nine months pregnant. Now, my wife and I, she, hoping to hurry on her labor, 
played tennis with another couple who the woman was also nine months pregnant at the time. And it was an interesting tennis game, as you can imagine. (laughs) They did okay as long as the ball came right to them. (laughs) But that little difficulty moving around the court. And when I think about Mary traveling to, having to travel 80 miles to give birth, being nine months pregnant, I can't imagine it. The pain of that and the difficulty and the exhaustion she must have felt at that time. And it says she laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Now, we don't know exactly where this manger was. We think maybe a stable or something. Scholars actually say probably it was in a cave because that's where most mangers were in those days. That's where they kept the animals. They didn't have wood around Bethlehem. They still don't to build structures out of wood. And so the places they kept the animals were the caves in that area around Bethlehem. Now, if you go there now, there's a cave with a church built over it, and they believe that's where Jesus was born. It very well could have been, but you don't get a feel for what it's like. But when I was in Israel, I had the opportunity, wandering over the hillside, just a few miles from Bethlehem, to wander into a shepherd's cave. Very interesting in there. Not very big. It was maybe the size of this stage here. And you walk in, and it's a low ceiling, and there were little stalls set up, piles of rocks separating these little stalls. It was dark, it was dank, and it reeked of thousands of years of animals being kept in there, of the urine and the dung that had piled up over centuries. You see, that is the kind of cave where Jesus was born, where Mary gave birth because there was no bed for her, no room in any of the houses in town, at least not in the inn. And the manger itself, we have a picture, we picture something like this, a nice wooden little manger. Well, if you actually go, the mangers that they have in that area, because they don't have wood to build with like we do, are stone, a big stone block hollowed out where they could dump the feed for the animals to keep it off the ground so it wouldn't be trampled underground. Cold, hard, unforgiving stone in a smelly cave is where Mary laid Joseph. I mean, excuse me, Jesus, as he was born. And it says there was no room at the inn. They'd left Nazareth, the place where they'd experienced rejection, social derision, had to leave their home, go 80 miles away, and then they experienced rejection there too. There's no room for them there. Far away from family and friends and anyone else. And I ask the question, why is there no mention of any grandparents? Now, Mary and Joseph, if their parents were alive or supportive, or well, if they were alive, they should have had to gone had to go to Bethlehem too. They were from the same tribe, the same area. But there's no mention of them traveling. There's no mention of them being there. And Luke adds a very significant detail in verse 7 where it says, She gave birth and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Why does it say that she did it? 
There was obviously no midwife there, no doctor helping out, no one to assist them. They were alone. And I wonder where Joseph was. (laughs) As I was talking about this uh, on staff, our woman staff member said, well, he was probably passed out in the next stall. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew tells us that Joseph did not consummate his marriage until Jesus was born. So at this intimate, most needy of times, there's no sign of him. Why didn't he wrap him in cloths and lay him in, lay him in a manger? So I picture Mary alone, tying off the umbilical cord, exhausted after her trip in the smelly cave, laying Jesus in a manger to keep him from getting stepped on by the animals and laying down in exhaustion to sleep. The God of the universe chose to be born under those conditions. Really, the worst that we have to offer, isn't it? Alone, rejected, in poverty, no help, dirty, unsanitary. See, Jesus chose... The king of the universe chose to be born into rejection in a small podunk country with no security, the stigma and the rejection of her hometown. Born into poverty, all she had was some cloth strips to wrap him in, no nice receiving blanket, no sterile conditions and into a completely fragile and vulnerable situation in a dirty stall to teenage parents with no family support, 80 miles from home, and the Lord of the universe is a tiny defenseless baby lying in the manger. I ask, why? Why would God himself, the Send his son to be born under those conditions. I think it's because being born under such conditions, the worst we have to offer, the worst we might have to endure, ensures that all barriers between God and you would be broken down. He experienced the worst we have to endure so that he can relate to every one of us who have ever been born. It doesn't matter how low you've been. He's been lower, even in his birth. If he'd been born in a middle-class family, somebody might be able to say, well, he doesn't know what it's like to be poor. He doesn't know what I have to experience in life. But he does. No one can say that. No one can say, I'm so low that he can't reach me. Because as low as you've been, he's been lower. Poverty, rejection, dysfunctional family, loneliness. He's been there. (laughs) He was born into that. He understands. Every barrier is removed when you look in the manger and see how Jesus chose to be born. Saw last week that old classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the scene where he's on the bridge and George is at his very lowest. He's got his life insurance policy. He figures 
The only thing he can do is kill himself. His life is not worth living anymore. He's as low as he can get. And Clarence, the angel sent to help him, dives into the water so that George will dive in and save him and begins his salvation at that point. George was low, but Clarence went lower for his sake. You may have been low, but God has been lower for your sake. What do we learn from this marvelous story? I want to just bring out four quick truths. First, God is humble. You see, in the Old Testament, there was plenty of sign of God being powerful, awesome, incredible, terrifying, Yes, caring and loving at times, but faithful and loyal, but not humble. But Paul writes in Philippians 2, be humble, have a humble attitude towards one another and take this attitude on yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself for you to the point of obedience and even death death on a cross. The fact that God is humble shows that he meets us where we are. He cares about us that much. Many of our old Christmas songs talk about the humility of God. Go tell it on the mountain. Traditional spiritual third verse says, down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born and God sent us salvation, that blessed Christmas morn. So God is humble. But secondly, second great truth that this story and how Jesus chose to be born teaches us is that God is desperate. You ever thought about God as desperate? There's no other word that comes to mind for me when I think about God going to such extremes to make sure there was absolutely no barrier between you and him. He was desperate to make sure that you had free access to him. So he was willing to do whatever it would take to break down every barrier, social, economic, spiritual, etc., etc. So you'd know he understands. About a year and a half ago, our family got a dog. We went to the Humane Society, got this cute little puppy and wonderful little dog. But every time that I got near her, she would cower. It was clear that she'd been abused by some man because any man who came near her, she would cower in terror and fear. Well, in a year and a half of loving this dog and spending time with her, she and I are good friends now, but she still cowers so often. And there'll be times when she'll be out in the street and a car will be coming and I'll yell for her to come to save her life. I'm for her. And she'll cower and stay right where she is because she has not learned to trust me. I don't know how to communicate to her. Maybe I should become a dog so I could communicate on her level. (laughs) But would I be desperate enough to do that? No. (laughs) No way. But see, we are abused by a world that's fallen and full of sin. We live in a dysfunctional, messed up world, and we're untrusting as well. But God, unlike me, was desperate enough to become one of us 
And not just become one of us, but become an abused human being. The very lowest of the low. So that we could know we can trust him. So we don't have to be afraid. Oh, we don't understand what he does. I know that. But the Christmas story proves that we can trust him. He became one of us. Third truth. If he was that desperate to become one of us, then we must be helpless. We must be in a mess. And we must need a Savior. See, the Christmas story is a reminder of how desperate we are in ourselves and how we need Him to come. And then the fourth truth, the Christmas story teaches us that God loves you. If He would go to such extremes, He must really love you and me. If He would be willing to be born under such humble circumstances, what love He has for us. You see, God, through the Incarnation, did everything He could to remove every barrier between you and Him. Only one barrier remains for every human being, and that's personal. Our own will. Will we choose to receive what He's offered us? Will will we choose to receive the life He has given Some of you may already know the Lord, but you felt like, he can't understand me. He's God. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. I encourage you this morning, as you celebrate Christmas in the next couple days, to know that he understands and he loves you. And some of you may have never, ever given your lives to Jesus. You've never taken that step to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And that's all you have to do because every other barrier is gone. It doesn't matter how bad a life you've lived. It doesn't matter your economic circumstances. It doesn't matter how much rejection you've experienced, abuse. He understands and He's waiting with open arms. He says, come. Will you make that choice if you never have? As we go to prayer together, I encourage you to do that in your own heart. Receive him as your Lord. He loves you. He proved it in how he was born, how he lived, and how he died. Let this Christmas be when you finally give your life over to the one who gave his life over for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you for how you chose to be born when you could have chosen anything. You could have chosen the most magnificent palace. You could have chosen a normal family. But you chose as you did so that we would know forever, once for all, that you understand that you love us and you want us. Lord, any hearts that have not been open to you, may they open today, this Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.